All right. Hello, everyone. I saw you guys in, but I didn't get a hug from you yet. I will. Um, my name is James. I was the director of youth ministry at Element for seven years, and now my wife and I moved to Washington. We've been gone for two and a half years, and so this is my first time home in almost two and a half years, so it's been uh, crazy. This is my first time uh, crying like three minutes ago, so excuse me. Um, but uh, So we moved away, and I figured I'd give you a small update on, on the last two and a half years. Um, one is, uh, well, we had another kid, so now we have Calvin, who's three, and Lucas, who just turned one. Um, and so that's really neat. But the big news is we bought a house. And so that is... Oh, yeah. <laughs> John likes that. Uh, and so with this house, we decided that we're going to try and renovate a bunch of things. And so having a house is wonderful because we finally have a place that's ours. And it's terrible because, well, we finally have a place that's ours. And uh, I can't just call the landlord anymore or complain to Aaron that something's broken. I actually have to fix it myself. And uh, so I've inherited this never-ending list of projects. And number one on my project list is convincing my wife that we are not Chip and Joanna Gaines. I'm not doing very well at it, but I will get there and I will convince her that that's happening. And so we've done a ton of stuff on our house and, and it's been a, a lot of work, but it's created some really great moments. And moments, moments like, like this. So this is Calvin and I painting the house. A lot of people will be like, oh, you're not supposed to step on that rung on the ladder. Clearly, you haven't been coming to Element very long. That is definitely where you should step. Um, and so uh, we, we painted the house, and, and Calvin, as a three-year-old, we gave him a paintbrush because we hadn't installed our floors yet and said go to town, and that was awesome. Um, and then we did this. Uh, crawled under the sink to replace this whole sink and countertop, and Calvin's like, ooh, that looks like fun. And so he crawled under there with me, and then afterwards we're looking at our glorious work, and this is Lucas, and he is just chewing on a hammer. Um, he's teething, and a hammer is a great opportunity to, to teeth. Uh, and so that has been a, a, a lot of fun, and, uh, and it's given me this deep sense of accomplishment in parenting. And it's given me this deep sense because there's that verse, train up a a child in the way they should go. And I feel like I'm just killing it at that. I'm just, I got that on lock because Calvin has, has gained these deep affections for Home Depot. He loves Home Depot. Multiple times, not like this happened one time, but multiple times, even multiple times a week, we'll wake up Saturday or I'll come home from work and he'll be like, Dada. Let's go to Home Depot. Yeah, buddy, we don't need anything and we're out of money, but we're going. Um, And so we'll walk around Home Depot and look at all the things. And and, uh, when Christmas happened and they put up their Christmas trees, his affections turned physical. And the first time they had Christmas trees in Home Depot, he saw the Christmas trees and just books it and runs to the Christmas trees and just gives them this big old hug And, and, and lingers. And I was like, Calvin, people are staring. Um, and so as we walk away, he goes, bye, Christmas tree. And kisses it. <laughs> Killing this parenting thing. I got this. Um, and so that has been uh, fun. But, uh, but also it's, it's created in all these little neat moments. Um, 
these times where uh, Calvin will come into the room and we're building his bunk bed or putting in a sink and um, he'll come in and he'll say, I, I-, I want to help. Like, oh, you're three. That's so cute. And then eventually Luke will be dragging his hammer across the new tile and, and he'll get into the bathroom too and he'll just sit there and want to be involved in everything. And I don't know if you've ever tried to renovate a house with a, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, but it's, it's not a recipe for efficiency. It's a recipe for tears. Um, and so Calvin will grab the screwdriver and like poke Lucas with it and then he'll drop the hammer and then like swing it against the new drywall. Oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. But I, I love that they want to help. I love that they show up with that can-do attitude and I want to cultivate that in them. But this is what Calvin will do. This is kind of his go-to line. Shows up with a can-do attitude and a screwdriver. I'm like, all right, buddy, this is what you actually use this for. This is how you use a screwdriver. And I'll show him, and then he'll rip the screwdriver out of my hand, and he'll say, no, I want to do it. I want, I want to do it. You're three. You don't know how to do anything. Like, give that back. Um, this is how you do it. And he snatches it again. No, I, I want to do it. And in all this, I saw the depravity of my little three-year-old's heart, and, and it's something that I related to. And it's something I think a lot of us relate to. Probably not renovating with a three-year-old, but, but this idea of, of no, I've got this. I, I know what I'm doing. I don't need your help. I don't need your instruction. I've got this. I'm going to work how I'm going to work. I'm going to hobby how I'm going to hobby. I'm going to go to school where I'm going to go to school. I'm going to do what I want to do. And when someone says, hey, you know what? This would be a better way. You can't do it this way. Or have you looked into this? It's like our inner junior hire comes out. And we go, you, you know what? You say I can't do this, but watch me. Watch me do this. And this idea of I want to do it and watch me do it, I've got this, is, is everywhere. It's in maybe learning how to drive. There's someone who's learning how to drive or you have learned how to drive. No one sits down with their parent and goes, okay, gracious father, teach me the rules of the road. I remember when I sat down with my mom for the first time, and she's like, watch out for that car. And I'm like, Mom, this car's faster. And I'm like, I've, I've got this. I know, I know what I'm doing, Mom. I don't, I don't need that. This kind of thinking is in our parenting. I don't have to read books. I don't have to talk to other people who have successfully parented their children. I've, I've got this. I've got this sneaks its way into kind of stubborn and prideful thinking in our marriage. I don't need help. I don't need to do this. I don't need redemption group. I don't need these kinds of things. Our problems are all problems. Let's just fix them. I've, I've got this. Maybe it even sneaked its way into your holiday season. And you go shopping and you're like, ah, I don't have any money. I've got this. I've got a brand new visa. I've got this thinking is, is, is everywhere. Maybe it is consuming you today thinking, you know what? Two, eight, 2018 will be my year. I've, I've got 2018. 2017 I completely lost control of, but this year I've got this. And it's as if we've grown so self-reliant and self-validating that we long for our own individual independence. It's like that's what we value over all. This thinking is so I don't know, toxic, if you will, that it works its way into how we deal with relationships how we set up relationships. It's influenced maybe some of our views of God, our view of Christianity. 
that it's worked its way into how we deal with our problems and how we deal with our biggest problem. And our biggest problem is the sin we commit against God. See, mankind's biggest problem is sin because sin is against an eternal God. And a sin against an eternal God, there is an eternal consequence for that. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. When we sin, we, we work against God. God says, this is good, this is right, this is just. And we go, well, what about this? Can, can I go this way? God says, be faithful to your spouse. And we go, well, what about this over here? I mean, this is just Facebook. Surely it's not unfaithfulness. God says, love your neighbor. And we go, well, have you met my neighbor? Because they're terrible. God says, worship one God. You go, well, what about Netflix? Surely binge watching night after night after night isn't an act of worship. It's just entertainment. Now, before you think James moved to Washington and got all crazy and anti-Netflix, that is not what happened. But I love Netflix. But when, when we blow off parenting and work and responsibilities in, in order to further devote ourselves to this little box we build our house around, yeah, it works its way into idolatry. And death comes through sin. It's a serious issue because death is permanent. It's the thing that terrifies us about death is that it's permanent. It's final. That's it. Through death, there is permanent separation. The human condition is sin. By nature and choice, we work at separating ourselves from God. Jesus talks about this in terms of of death, but he also talks about it in terms of debt. Matthew 6, 12, part of the Sermon on the Mount, it is uh, forgive us our our debt as we forgive our debtors. Colossians 2, 14, we're told that there is a legal debt that stands against us, against those who sin. Sin against an eternal God is an eternal offense and it accumulates an eternal punishment, an eternal debt. See, when someone breaks the law and they get caught, they accumulate a debt, a debt to society. Sometimes you pay that off in money, sometimes it's time, sometimes it's years. In rare cases, someone pays off their debt to society with their own life, but the debt must be paid. And so when we accumulate an an eternal debt... How do we deal with that? It's the question that many of us ask ourselves. It's the question that people have been asking themselves for hundreds, thousands of years. As I looked into the life of Martin Luther and started learning more about uh, the Reformation and and Luther and kind of all all these guys, I learned about the early church in Germany in the 1500s. And and there were some really shady guys who shouldn't have been in power, who kind of bribed, tricked, and bullied their way into power seats of power in the church. And so in the 1500s, they issued this decree of indulgences. And indulgences was this idea that if you paid enough money to the church from a righteous heart, if you paid enough money to the church, that eventually you could pay off your debt. You could pay your sin off. And it was a smash hit. I mean, they amped it up. There was this big production, and people gave like they've never gave before. 
And, and I get why. Like, I can give to a good cause and save my soul? Yeah, take my money. Here you go. And if you paid enough money, you could save and you could pay off the debt of your children and your spouse and your family members. Like, how could you not want that? Sure, I can give you some money for that. So this is how people felt, and this is what they did. And I can't fault them for it, because a lot of times I think we fall into the same thing. Maybe it's not with money. Maybe it's something else. If I'm a good person, then God will save me. If I'm moral enough, if I go to church enough, if I read enough, then God will forgive my sin. If I abstain from this enough, if I do X, abstain from Y, then God will give me Z. It's a popular view in the 1500s. I still think it's a popular view today. And Martin Luther, he writes this in response to this thinking that's happening in the 1500s in the church. He says this, Either sin is lying on your shoulders or on Christ, the Lamb of God. According to the law and to justice, your sin should no doubt remain on you. The quote continues, but I want to stop there. The consequences for an individual sin should be on that individual. I didn't make you sin. You didn't make me sin. I was sinning long before I knew you. You were sinning long before you knew me. Especially if we think about this in this like two and a half years that we have been separated, there is no way I would hold any of you responsible for my sin. As much as I would like to hold Patrick Ernest responsible for my sin over the last two and a half years, I can't. If you don't know who Patrick Ernest is, you need to get to know that guy and then say, it's your fault. He said it was okay if I said that. So, um, No, it'd be fair for me to put my sin and the consequences for my sin to be, to be on, on me. And here's the rest of the quote. But grace has cast them upon Christ the Lamb. Two options. Either your sin is on you or it's on Jesus. This is simply an echo of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin should lie on our shoulders and the punishment for that. But it It lies on Christ. Grace makes it so. God takes our punishment, takes our debt, takes our death, and pays for it. And every time I talk about grace, every time I read on grace, every time I hear someone talk about grace, my my first thought is always, why? Like, it's not a new concept, but it's something that I just have such a hard time grasping. Why would Jesus do this? Because it's, it's fair for someone to be held accountable for their sin. In fact, when people sin against me, I hold them accountable to that sin. You have sinned against me. You owe me an apology. I'm trying to teach Calvin this. You punched her. Apologize. You owe her or him or whoever that. And, and if it's something really bad, like if you were to crash into my car and total my car, not only would I think you owe me an apology, you'd owe me a new car. You'd owe me the money to fix my car. I've got you. You're indebted to me. If someone totaled my car, I probably wouldn't be like, go with God, brother, see ya. No. Jesus takes the punishment and he offers us forgiveness. He takes our sin and he replaces it with his righteousness. This is the great exchange. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Why should we be the righteousness of God? There is no logical explanation for why people who work against God might become His righteousness. All we're left with is grace. And this is a great way to start the new year. With grace. Grace is this wonderful word, meaning given what one does not deserve. Grace is the unearned, unmerited favor of God. God's goodness, God's favor, God's blessing, God's righteousness through Christ would be upon those who have not earned it and who are not deserving of it. And it's such a strange concept to me. Not new, but but strange. Because almost every time I I want to be in this place where I go, I've got this. I, I want to do this. I want to earn this. These are the things I have done that have justified myself. I was really good in 2017, and karma says 2018 should be good. Or or 2017 was terrible, and thus I've paid my dues, and 2018 should be better. Can I pay you for this? Can I work for this? Maybe depending on where you're at. You're thinking not, I've paid my dues and I want to pay for this, but I could never obtain this. This will never be for me. The unearned, unmerited favor of God will never find me because I'm too terrible. I I can't stop what I'm doing. Or, Or maybe more accurately, I won't stop what I'm doing. It's difficult for us to grasp. Because it's far from our nature. I'm inclined to do nice things to people who are first nice to me. Because they've earned my favor. But that is not grace. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace isn't grace if it's a result of works. If you can earn grace, then it just becomes reward or or payment. You most likely don't consider your place of employment graceful when they pay you. There was intense negotiations that happened before you accepted this job where you said, I will work this amount of hours, I will do this, and you will pay me this much. And they said, that's cute of you to say that. You will work this amount of hours, you will do this things, and we will add things to that list, and we'll pay you this much. And you met somewhere in the middle. Then, when payday comes around, they pay you. You're not like, oh, wow, that was generous of you. Thank you. No, you, you earned that. That is your reward. That is your payment. Grace is not like that. Unearned, unmerited, favor of God, not a result of works. And we are rescued out of our eternal death, out of our eternal debt, because Jesus is filled with grace. It's all we have. He is all we have. He is our only hope. In the first chapter of John, John talks about the very word of God becoming flesh. And he says this about Jesus. 1 John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, as Martin Luther says, according to the law and justice, our sins should no doubt be upon us, but grace has cast them upon to Christ the Lamb of God. Jesus comes and gives grace, forgiveness, eternal life, relational life, spiritual life. And it doesn't come through you or through me or through a leader or through some dead theologian. It comes only through Jesus, Christ alone. This is a wonderful news of hope because it means no matter where you are, there's hope. Because no matter where you are, there can be grace for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, God's unmerited, unearned favor can be bestowed to even you and me. That no sin is too large that God and grace could not cover it. No running too far that God could not find you. No debt accumulated too large that the eternal one cannot forgive it. In fact, when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. The eternal debt is taken care of by the eternal one. The great news for us is that grace is given to us and we can live in the freedom of that grace. Again, maybe you are there and you think, well, what about me? You don't know what I've done. You've been gone for two and a half years. Thanks for that. Um, You don't know my struggle. I don't think God would love me, could love me, or want to love me after what I've done. Here's what I know to be true. You're wrong. You're just so wrong. And not only are you wrong, you're in great company. I doubt there is a single Christian in this room who hasn't felt that before, hasn't wrestled with that, or is currently dealing with that. If this is you, please get into a gospel community. Get around some people who are living their life in response to the grace of God. Walk through this with them. Let me encourage you with this verse. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Fantastic news. But let me tell you where I'm at and where I've kind of been for a while and wrestling through. Um, I moved away, moved to a new state, a new city, a new church. And, and with that comes all sorts of pressures of wanting to be really good. Wanting to perform well and wanting to say, you know what? I've got this. I've got this. And I want that praise from people. It's really weird coming back here. Um, 
because it's not that I was necessarily nervous to come back, but when Aaron was like, would you, would you speak on Sunday? Part of me was like, I have to do really good because I really want people to think I grew up in two years and I'm way better than I actually am. Um, but that was, that was a thought that I continued to wrestle with the last couple weeks and, and, and being here and thinking, I, I, I want to do this. I've got this. At one point, I needed grace. But Jesus, that's fantastic. I'll take it from here. I'm a good enough person now. I've got enough skill now. I've got enough Bible knowledge now. I've got enough of this now. I can take it from here and I can pay off my debt. And it's foolishness. It's pure foolishness. Imagine how silly it would be for any of us to pay off a debt that's already been paid. I think about it in terms of my house because that's all I think about now. Um, I'm hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And I know going into buying a house, I would be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And and they got me for a 30-year loan, which means they have me for eternity. Um, so 30 year loan, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And and I knew what I was getting into. They made me sign a a mountain of paperwork being like 700 times. We want to let you know, this is the amount that you owe us at this rate for this year. This is what's happening. Okay. I know, I know that I got it. Now imagine I get home and my loan agency calls me up and they say, Hey, Mr. Fairfield, welcome to 2018. This is the amount of money that you owe us. Yes, I I know that I owe you hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Thank you for that. And we know we got you for 30 years, right? Yes. Thank you for really bringing up these wounds with me. Um, Great. Mr. Fairfield, uh, welcome back from California. We have decided to forgive your loan. We have paid your loan. You don't owe us anything anymore. That would be a fantastic phone call. It's not going to happen, but let me live in this fantasy for a little bit. Um, Now, after a while of them convincing me that this actually happened and this is real, um, at the end of this phone call, could you imagine how silly it would be if I was to say, I really appreciate you guys paying off this loan and forgiving me. I'll write you a mortgage check next month. No, Mr. Fairfield, you don't understand. Your your loan has been paid for. It's been forgiven. Yeah, I know, but I've got this. Like, I really want a bigger part in this. I really want to help pay off my loan. That'd be crazy. Now, if you're feeling generous and you'd like to do this for me, I promise not to react that way. I'll just, I'll just embrace it. It'd be fantastic. But, but none of us would do that. Yet I think maybe that's where some of us are at with our relationship and how we view Christianity. Your debt has been paid. And we go, but I, I, need, I, I need to pay. I need to have a bigger part of this. No, 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 no. I've got this. If you've made a relationship with Jesus into a comparison game or into a performance, you're seeking to pay off a debt you no longer owe. If you're thinking God could never find me, I'm too bad, too unforgivable, grace will not be enough. You are working against what God has already provided and what potentially you've already been given or is in store for you. 
I urge you to find freedom in the grace of God. Not continue in this foolishness. See, the Christian life, our service, the way we live, what we do, how we set up life, is not lived in order to earn favor with God. But rather, we live, we work, we worship in response to the favor and the grace of God. I could tell you that if my house was paid off next week, I would have a lot of resources freed up. I'd be able to do things in the house and with the house that I really wanted to do. But it wouldn't just be my house I'd be able to do things with. It'd be a lot of resources to give, to care, to invest into people and into things that I really want to see happen. So much freedom would be given. I wouldn't let my house deteriorate because someone decided to be gracious with me. I'd care for it all the more because someone decided to be gracious with me. What a fantastic thing that would be. What freedom is found in the grace of Christ that we get to live and be who we are called and made to be. Not have to spend our days worrying about and working towards a debt that if you are in Christ, you no longer owe because Jesus has paid that debt. At Element, we respond to grace in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that we do that is through communion. We, we take this cracker, which represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, and we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which represents his blood that was spilled for us. And we realize that, that grace isn't cheap cost Jesus much, but he gives it to us freely. And so we remember that. We worship God through singing. Band's going to come up. They're here. Um, And and we're going to sing of God's grace. We're going to sing of God's love, of his ability to forgive this, this wondrous love and grace of God. We're singing this song. It's one of my favorite worship songs. It's called Poison Tree. And it talks about trying to tie good fruit to a dead tree and how Jesus comes and and uproots and replants something brand new, grace. We, We respond to God through prayer. If you're here and you need prayer, you want to talk with someone, you need to pray with someone, there'll be elders and deacons in the back. They'd love to pray with you, talk to you about this. Not that they have all the answers, but man, I know that those guys and those women back there, they love Jesus. It's fantastic to go find prayer, find someone to pray with. We would live in response to the grace of God through community. We worship God through community. Every week we get together in different homes and we live life together. Live life on mission We live in response to the grace of God by being gracious with others. We have received much grace, and so we show that grace to other people, freely giving grace to others, not making them earn it, like Jesus did not make us earn the grace he gives us. Grace, and and, and this whole thing really came alive for me and Jesus opened my eyes to grace here. 
It's been absolutely wonderful being here and getting to share and talk and be in this community again. And see the grace of God and how it transforms lives. My prayer, my hope for you all is that 2018 would be a time in which God opens your eyes and restores your hearts to see the wonderful grace of Jesus. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, we love you and we thank you for grace. Without it, we are lost. We are stuck. We are internally in debt. But you have come and paid that debt, loved us in a way that no one else can, given freely of yourself so that we who are undeserving might be the righteousness of God. God, as we seek you and as we live in response to this grace, may others come to know who you are by how we live and the grace that is evident in us we would boldly proclaim Your grace and You would draw people in. Lord, we love You and we give You praise in everything. Amen.